Ever heard of a podcast where one of the hosts has no idea what's going on? Well, now you have. Welcome to Unprompted, the show where one of the hosts shows up completely unaware of the conversation topic for the episode. From technology to society to history, life, and more, each episode features a unique topic and the hosts unravel the details together using nothing but their background knowledge and past experiences. Hosted by Luke Bogus and Jared Arts, we hope you enjoy today's Unprompted Conversation. Mr. Jared. Mr. Luke. We're back. Very timely of us. Very uh, very short duration between our, this and our last episode. I mean, I think we've really got our cadence down on this whole remote podcast every week cadence that we've definitely been doing for the last year. I think, I mean, our 22 episodes every week over the last year has sh- certainly shown that, uh, that we don't, we don't skip. No, I, and I, I appreciate our viewers sticking with us, uh, and, and dealing with the volume of content that we put out on a week by week basis. I, I'm, it's a lot of content to trudge through. So I, I appreciate all of the, the zeros of listeners out there that do so. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Uh, yeah, this is, I mean, we, we are much, you know, much more on time than usual. I mean, this is That's only true. a week and a half, two weeks after, nor- after our last episode. Uh, I mean, we're, we're running in. Uh, running it with another one it's it's luke's topics this time i guess do we have any do we have any pre-show luke do you have any pre-show you know any life the, updates? Only, the only pre-show to give is you know we're 22 episodes in and you know we maybe there's a lot of new listeners out there folks who don't really know who we are and we kind of just jump into the same old banter and so i think it would be maybe helpful to step back introduce ourselves just do a little bit of who are we like what's the purpose of the pod how to start you know it doesn't have to be anything crazy it's just I feel like, um, you know, for all, all the new listeners that have joined us in the last year, it might be good to have a little refresher on who Jared is. So let's start I, with that. Who, who is Jared? I think that this is a good thing to do because we are, I'd say we're fundamentally different people mm. than we were a year ago. That's because deep. we can't say we're recent grads. That, yikes. Like <laughs> our last no year we said like we just graduated from UNL and this year I can say nothing besides I am a software engineer at Microsoft. I live in Nebraska. Um, I work from home. I cook for fun. Mm-hmm. I read history less than I used to because I have less time. Um, I'm 23 years old. I'm going to not give too much information so people don't steal my identity. <laughs> <laughs> but, my uh, social security number is? Yes. <laughs> my address, my phone number. Uh yeah, no, I guess yeah, I'm, I'm a you know, Microsoft engineer. I work, you know, work on Azure. Uh, the big thing about me that you'll learn throughout this podcast is that I really enjoy history um, and learning all about all types of things. Um, I'm a sometimes a decent talker, and I might talk for too long. Uh, and yeah, I have a lot of random interests, so that sometimes shows in this podcast. But I, the better question than who I am, you know, as a, you know, such a simple. A well-defined answer. The, the question on vexing everyone's mind, though, is who is Luke Bogus? <laughs> you know, I ask myself this question weekly. Who am I? What What am I doing here? What's my purpose? But on a more realistic answer, uh, my name's Luke. Um, I am 22. About to be 23 in wow, two days. youngster. Which is exciting. Yeah, very young. Uh, Jared and I graduated together in college over a year ago now. And like Jared said, we can't really use the crutch of recent college grad as much anymore. But I'm also at Microsoft. I'm a product manager. 
yeah. What do I do in my free time? Lots of TikTok. Um, but no, I love watching sports. Um, I really enjoy the coffee scene out here, the craft brewery scene out here. So I've been indulging in that, which has been probably not the greatest for my health, but, uh, it's been fun nonetheless. Um, yeah, those are like the main highlights. I went to the gym for a couple months. That was cool. <laughs> I haven't done that in a while. Uh, I'm redesigning like my desk setup right now, um, which is kind of cool. So it's about the most fun thing a person can do. That is, that is true. I, I will say it's just like, it's, it's funny because it's just like my ideas for fun have just like totally been changed. Like college, like fun would just be hanging out with friends and going to parties and doing all this stuff. And now it's like, I did nothing over Memorial Day weekend and my manager was like, Hey, like, what, what'd you do? And I was like, I don't know. I think my highlight was trying a new coffee shop that I went to. That was it. Like that is the highlight of my three day weekend, which you know what? I'm fine with when I started full time. My perception of that was that's boring, that's sad, that's lame. And now I'm kind of like, it's peaceful. Like I'm very, I'm happy. Like I'm glad that like I have the peace of mind to just be able to enjoy romanticize life a little bit more, you know? Well, Luke hitting us with like, with, with many years of wisdom packed into one. That's what you get when you move to Seattle. You, that, you can condense your, your, your wisening period. Very that short. is true. That's that's a very good point. I do live in Seattle. I'm a thousand miles away from Jared, and true. I have definitely learned a lot about myself, about the world, out being out here. Uh, it's been it's been very healthy. It's been good. My worldview has expanded, which I appreciate. But not for much longer. You're you're coming back to shrink your world. To that, shrink your world <laughs> that I am. <laughs> Lucky me. Now head, heading back home uh, to Lincoln for a bit, at least six months exploring some work remote travel situation stuff we'll see what happens we'll see what lands but yeah i said i'm redoing my desk setup but how crazy is that that i'm doing that a month before i'm moving that uh, makes no sense but uh that's well you I figure am. out what works and then you get to start completely fresh so you get to take <laughs> all the best ideas from your old desk and set up a new desk that is very true that is very true yeah i'm i'm it's weird to like move out here, get settled, then pack up and move back. My girlfriend lives back in Nebraska. That's why I'm also moving back. Um, but yeah, it's, it's going to be good. I, I think I've learned that Microsoft's been pretty friendly. At least my team's been pretty friendly about remote work. I feel like I think as a fear as like a young person is that being in office like would offer me more opportunities or like I wouldn't miss out on stuff. Like probably the people that I admire the most on my team are fully remote. And like, I've never, I've, in two of them, I can think of in my head, I've literally never met in person. So it's like, if I have that opinion, I, I don't see how I'd lose out on much. Maybe a happy hour here and there, maybe like a casual coffee run with some friends here and there. But um, from work perspective, I don't think I'm going to miss a lot. From a life perspective, you know, I made some friends out here, but my family's back in Nebraska. I probably have more volume of friends back in Nebraska. My girlfriend's back in Nebraska. So just kind of kind of makes sense right now and then we'll just we'll go with the wind we'll see where the wind takes us how long we'll be yeah back home yeah it'll be it'll be exciting to have luke back soon um it could for all we know be the next podcast the way things with the way things shape <laughs> yeah well i mean thankfully with our weekly rigorous cadence that that cannot be the case at all but yeah it's impossible un- unfathomable yes I, I i the topic today that i want to talk about is also well, jumping right into it we, we really are uh, trying to find a good segue. Uh, first off, thanks for the, for indulging me on the intros. Hopefully all those new listeners. I'm Luke. That's Jared. Jared's the brains here. I kind of just 
hang out and just the, I'm always in awe of the things that Jared says. So it's the reverse uh, is the reality. <laughs> well, we're I think we're about to drop some knowledge on uh, on the pod today. This is a topic that I've been thinking a lot about, especially since I am moving and moving costs money and money is an interesting topic when it comes to new hires, I feel like in the workforce, particularly it's like a hyper topic of people in tech. I mean, we are so lucky to be making the money we are. We talked about that a little bit in the last podcast about like the recession and stuff, but like a frequent topic among you and me, among friends, just among like the general tech industry is like, you know, optimizing for how much you can save for retirement and then retire early and fire and all this stuff, right? There's this book I've been meaning to read for a while now, but I've, I've seen like some great synopsis of it, some great summaries. It's called Die with Zero. It's by this fellow named Bill Perkins. And as you can imagine from the title of the book, the main idea is like, what is your optimum retirement strategy and how do you retire and ultimately die with zero dollars in the bank? And the thought process is, is that we are all in this trap of saving all this money to ultimately retire and live a fruitful life. But we work for 50 years to enjoy it for seven and then we die is like how most people unfortunately go. So basically the entire book talks about, again, I haven't read it. This is just the synopsis from like from videos and podcasts I've heard it referred to, but like basically the, the premise of it talks about like investing in experiences over things. Obviously that's one aim to die with zero give money to kids and charity early on in your life, but ultimately like know when to stop. And I think that that's like the piece maybe we want to explore more is like, it's this perpetual, like how do we save more and invest more and strategize more and live like within your means more so that I can have all this cash and do all these things when I'm 55. But it's like, is that a positive life? Like, is that the life I want? Like trudge through the next 30 years that when I'm 55 and my kids leave the house, I can finally live the life that I want to live. Granted, there's definitely people out there that do that and it's great for them. I also unfortunately know people who do that. And then five years later, uh, have a heart attack and can't travel anymore. So it's like they do all, they live their entire life, a stress filled life so that they can enjoy it for a little bit and then ultimately pass. So it's like, I've been thinking a lot about, and I'm sure you have, what are we saving for? Not to say don't save, which maybe some we can talk about, but how much is too much? How much is optimization is too much? And should we forego life experiences and things that we want at an early age because we have the opportunity to make money to buy those things? Should we forego that for this futuristic retirement nirvana of where we're going to have a bajillion dollars saved and we can finally live the life we want to live? So that is the that's the thesis of things I want to talk about. I see some smirks. We're watching, we're, we're, we're recording on video. Uh, it's just an audio pod, but we got the video going. I see Jared smiling. So I'm sure, I'm sure he has some thoughts to share. I'd like, yeah, I'd like to start out by saying that this is the exact to the letter topic that I really wanted to do with Connor at ah. some point, which Connor was a guest in a couple episodes ago. Uh, he's a very smart, uh, He's a big finance guy, a, a quant trader, um, and I think I, I really wanted to do this topic with him. But I've also just wanted to do this topic, so I'm glad you brought it up because I've been actually been having it on the back awesome. for quite a while. Um, this is a question I think about a lot because I think for 
young professionals, but especially for tech people like us. It is like the it's like the most important thing that we can think about because, yeah, like you mentioned, we make good money and we have the opportunity to have life experiences or buy things and enjoy things um, relatively easily. Like, you know, but we also have kind of the societal pressure to save as much as possible, like you said, to essentially optimize our life towards, yeah, building up this like Scrooge's lair filled with coins that we can swim in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think my thinking on this splits in two ways. Uh, the first side of me says that I am young right now. I should be enjoying life right now. And so I should be indulging on experiences and things that I enjoy now during the peak of my life. And then, uh, you know, not ha- not necessarily be a millionaire, billionaire when I'm in my 50s and 60s. Um, the other side of me says that, yes, you know, you're, you are at this point in your life where you are, you know, the, you know, the, the peak of your life, I guess. But when you are older you're going to have kids that you're going to want to indulge in. And so it's hard to know this balance. So you should just be more cautious and save one. And I think that at this exact point in my life, I lean towards more the I'm young, I should be indulging in things. Um, But at the same time, being a big, having a big interest in finance myself, I think that that doesn't just mean like spending all your money. Like I, Mm -hmm. I personally still put about half of my paycheck away to retirement savings every two weeks um and then do additional savings and stock and one like i I don't just save i don't just spend everything obviously um but uh it is a question of like should i be saving less because yeah it's like and maybe this is our our 23 year old 22 23 year old privilege speaking of like in a way we're almost saying like oh man when we're 50 like we're essentially in the grave. Why would we yeah. be trying to enjoy? Why would we be trying to enjoy life at fifty or sixty? Like, there's going to be nothing enjoyable about life. And the truth is, like, there there will be things that we enjoy and that are fun in life. Um, the question just is, do we need to be? Do we need to be exceptionally wealthy at that time? Because the, the point is, if we live so frugally right now, when we're twenty three, twenty two, in the positions we are, we will have too much money. Like you said, we won't die with zero. Um, I'll get to that later. I don't think that dying with zero should be a goal, but, um, Mm. but I think that even if we, as tech people, of course, it's different for every any industry, you know, the position we're at indulging in ourselves a little bit and not necessarily living a Spartan life will not put us in a position where we won't enjoy life later. I think our lives are still be enjoyable at 50. We'll still have a good, you know, we'll still be fine. Uh, we'll still have enough to do what we enjoy and travel. Uh, it's just that we won't probably be those guys on TikTok talking about how you need financial freedom. Uh, that's kind of my initial thoughts, which is very rambly. Mm-hmm. So. No, I love it. And like, <clears throat> I mean, and you alluded in there a few times, like, oh, we're in tech and like the privilege that we have, which is, I mean, absolutely true. But it's like, it also applies to just like, 
I mean, people not in tech as well. Like, I think it, I think it's interesting, just like this thought process of like, you know, I think about, you know, somebody cha- like the classic story of maybe somebody who like aspires to, uh, you know, be on Broadway in New York. I mean, to, to achieve that, the very canonical stories, you know, you move to New York and you work as a waiter and you do after hours shows and you do casting calls. And then maybe one day after six hard years of work, you're finally there. Like financially, obviously that makes no sense. Like why, like why would you do that? Like that makes absolutely no sense. But in the midst of chasing your dreams, there's also kind of this area of while you're in New York doing those things, like you shouldn't just grind for your job so that you can then just do your job, do your casting calls and then go to bed. It's like, well, even though you're not making a lot of money, that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't enjoy things, go to fancy restaurants, uh, go on vacations and stuff. Like, I don't think like, this is like a little on like a little tangential to it, but it's like, you know, I think about like just because somebody is in like a low financial situation does not mean that they can't enjoy life. Like if you're somebody who is like making minimum wage or like, you know, making little, uh, uh not a whole lot of money, I think that like it'd be a sad reality if like the expectation is that every dollar that I make always goes towards something functional. It's like, you know, like the right to be happy and like the right to like enjoy yourself and spend the money the way you want to spend, like that should be applicable for any range of budget. And I mean, we're thankful enough to have that range be larger and pro- and enjoy different larger things. But like, you know, just for somebody who is making minimum wage, like, I mean, it's, it's like they also have the right to enjoy themselves and treat themselves and go on vacations and stuff too. But it's like, there's always the social pressure of like, well, no, you should just spend on things that you need to spend for and then absolutely save the rest so that you can buy a house because that's success or save the rest so you can fund your kid's college and which is awesome. But it's, there's always something to save for. There's always something in the far future, but like, I feel like I've never stepped back to think about what are those things and what I'm saving mapping to those long-term goals, or am I just saving for the hell of saving, which the answer is I'm saving for the hell of saving. And at age 22, I don't think I have to optimize for like, I need to save this much money to buy my kid's college. Like, I don't think that that's, I'm arguing that's something I need to think about, but I think it is an interesting thought exercise behind like, am I saving just for the hell of it? And am I saving in a way that is restricting my ability to enjoy the present because I'm applying my own pressure to myself because I need to be saving for this thing that I don't know why I'm saving for recursive loop. So I'm curious what you think about that, um, particularly around the idea of like, yeah. I'll just let you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think this is the classic question of like, what do we as a society value? And I think that over the past 40 years or so, there's been this increasing, this increasing idea that what we value, especially as I'd say, like, what you'd consider the affluent, like, young professional class. Um, and I, I, I'm speaking primarily about tech workers and young professionals, not because I want to discount anyone who's in a different financial situation, but just because I don't have enough understanding of that situation to talk intelligently Mm -hmm. about it. So I don't want to try to misrepresent um, someone else's situation uh, who's not making, you know, working a job like I am. So I can only really speak uh, personally about that. And, uh, but I think it's kind of been bred into us is this idea, like the, the measure of value is like net worth. 
And I think we can see this when we kind of talk to our friends. And I, I think that was a really good point when you said, like, we talk about money a lot. Like, damn, like, I feel like we talk about money in, like, our friend group almost exclusively. Like, it's not exclusive, but it's, like, almost everything we talk about is related to money. We talk about the stock market. We talk about retail investments. We talk about um, kind of, like, our jobs. We talk about our investments. Like, there are other things we talk about, obviously, but it feels like when we get together, that common thread that we all can connect around is money. And like this idea of like uh, making a lot of money and increasing our net worth. Like I know conversations with some friends where, you know, maybe they like talk about like, oh, like based based on like our trajectory right now or my trajectory right now, like when am I going to hit a million dollar net worth? Like what does what that timeline look like? What age is it going to be? What do you think yours is going to be? And it's like, at the end of the day, the question is like, is money, is net worth actually worth anything in this life? And obviously there's, there's functional value to it. Um, but like speaking from our perspective, like there's a point where it makes no, it makes absolutely no sense. Like, uh, let's say us at, you know, we have like a, at 35, 40, whatever million million net worth, let's say. Like, what does that do for us? At what point does, like, this quest for money bring us no more um, marginal benefit, right? And I think that's, like, the the question. Is, like, at what point does money stop being useful um, to us in terms of, like, hoarding it? Uh, And that is not a question I have been able to solve because I feel like it's been beaten so hard into us of, like, be frugal, save a lot of money, um, build up this net worth. And essentially in this, this like idea that no matter what happens, like if the whole society falls apart, you'll be okay because you'll be one of the people that have enough resources, you know, to be mm-hmm. okay. But like long and the short of it, society falls apart and like you're in a situation where, you know, a good savings net doesn't save you. Your society is in a pretty rough place. If you're in America, at least I mean, if your savings net is, is is hurt um like a typical three to six to year savings net um kind of nest egg um but i don't know i i I guess the question is like to you personally and maybe this question has changed or the answer to this question has changed has like what is your personal value on money like do you feel like money is important to living a good life yes i mean because i think the the thing I guess I'm tra- I was trying to explore earlier when I was rambling is like this thought process of questioning the default that if you have an extra $50, you have an extra $100, you have an extra $1,000, whatever it is depending on your situation. Like the default, I feel like in most advice and the pressure from the rhetoric we've heard all of our lives, from the rhetoric we hear everywhere else, the default is to just save, invest it for the future. Which is, which is all that great. But I think the interesting thing about money is, and like what the book explores, it's just like, can you articulate what an ideal life is, what enough is, and allow yourself to stop? Like, I think the harsh, I think when it gets tough for, again, from the perspective of a young professional, when it gets really tough, is you have all these, you know, 
money flow set up, you put automatically put X percent into your from your paycheck into your 401k. You automatically put X percent into your savings. You automatically put X percent into your investments, etc. You know, some of it's just might be arbitrary, like ah, eh, 500. You just choose a number, whatever. Some of it might be calculated, regardless of how you get there. Even if you have the habit of doing all those three things, there's always a pressure of like more, like. Why can't this be instead of 10%, why can't it be 12? Instead of a 500, why can't it be 550? And like, how can I optimize my life and my situation such that I can try to reach this bear? And so it's like, it's a constant pressure and stress. And I guess I question for what? I think the thing that I personally want to explore in my financial life in the coming years is like trying to better articulate, you know, not that I'm going to know every expense that I'm, I need from now until I'm 50. I mean, like life throws crazy ass curveballs at you and you never know when you have to spend money. But I think it'd be interesting to explore what is my version of enough? What is my version of an ideal financial life? What is my version of an ideal life? How do I then map goals to those and be happy enough? And when I have an extra 100, 500, 1,000, whatever it might be, after meeting those goals, and those goals are, again, to achieve the articulated goals that I have in my future, when I have that extra money, the default isn't to like, okay, how can I then save more? It's I deserve to spend this or I deserve to put this in a fund to go on a trip or I deserve to whatever. And maybe earlier on in life, it's that I'm going to use this money to do a down payment on whatever, or I need to pay off this debt or whatever it might be. But I think just like exploring the idea of setting up your workflows percentages derived from what your optimal life is, setting that barrier, setting that default, and just not ever thinking about it, checking in with it every six months, every year, whatever, and the extra cash that you have, default that to experiences and positive life outcomes that you want, using that money to, you know, again, buy the thing that you've always wanted, using that money to put it towards the fund to go to Jamaica, like whatever it might be, rather than just optimize every dollar of cash to save for this fictitious future of retirement. Is Again, just like this ideal state but I think it's a state that I would love to get in because I always am thinking, how can I just save $20 more a month? How can I always? And it's just a constant anxiousness. And it'd be awesome to just pick a number, have that number be derived from real future results that I want and just stick with it and be happy. I don't know if you think about it that way or if you're always like, if you feel it's better to have that constant pressure of, can I save more? Because that makes you more rigorous about your money. Like, do you have a similar perspective? So let me, you know, play a devil's advocate, which is not really a devil's advocate in this case, but um, how selfish it is of us to not save as much as we can. Mm. Because, you know, and this is kind of getting to the point where I said, like, I don't think that dying with zero should be any sort of goal. Um, the... You know, because like, obviously, even if we, you know, we could live exceptionally frugally, but if we don't, like, we can still save more. Obviously, like, I'm sure both of us could save more than we are right now. And sure, it's saying for our fictitious future or fictitious retirement, I hope we both make it to retire. <laughs> <laughs> our very real retirement someday. Yeah, I think that there's a there's a limited, like, marginal benefit to saving the extra $20 in, in our situation. But what we know is the biggest indicator of like how much money is going to grow is time and market. Right. And so 
what we have the opportunity to do in our positions uh, is build extremely strong generational wealth. That means that our extra effort saving here makes our children's, our grandchildren's, our great-grandchildren's lives significantly easier and better and more resilient to um, disruption and and change uh, because of our suffering. The same reason, like, uh, maybe, you know, our great-great-grandparents, you know, they could have just stayed in this city and not came out to the middle of nowhere in Nebraska and Columbus and David City and probably worked their asses off in pretty poor conditions to build a life for their future um, kids. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of this idea of like, we're sacrificing, you know, we're sacrificing a fancy dinner so that our great grandchild can, you know, go to the best college on Mars someday or something <laughs> like that. Right. Uh, and so that's kind of like the devil's advocate of like this constant pressure that we feel is probably in part due to this idea that we are, we're not saving just for ourselves. Like, I think that, you know, you mentioned like in the book that, you know, give to your kids and charities early instead of doing, you know, late in life. And that's like a thought, but it's also, you know, if you want to maximize what you're giving, if you want to maximize your impact on the future generations, you don't want to give early. You want to have it be sitting in some managed fund or in a foundation that you set up that is going to be able to be one resilient to your death and, um, inheritance taxes uh and be able to distribute over generations to your to your um to your kin and your future um this kind of descendants and so i think that that's where like the balance comes in of like how much how much do you give into this pressure to save like you want to live a good life yourself um because you want your ancestors work their asses off to get you in this great position and so then the question is how much do you enjoy their work and how much do you work your ass off for the future generation? Like at some point someone's going to not have to work, have to work, I guess. Um, and maybe, you know, a separate argument is like making your future. I mean, based on where our lives are making the future generations lives much easier is maybe a bad thing to do. Maybe you know, they're not going to be fulfilled then if they just have everything handed to them. Um, but I think that's the interesting contrast of like, Hey, we want to enjoy our own lives, but if we end up with zero, we might be worsening the lives of our, you know, our kids and our, our, our descendants, uh, because we don't know what the situation is, economic situation is going to be in the future. Um, we might need, need that extra money as a family in the future to be resilient to change. So I don't know what you think. have any thoughts about that. <laughs> That's an awesome perspective. And that actually makes me want to read this book because one of the chapters, yeah, is explicitly about why to give money to kids and charity early. But I think the obvious flaw and the obvious point is dying with zero does not build generational wealth. Like if Jason Tatum, the NBA basketball player making a bajillion dollars a year, had the mentality of die with zero, like what an amazing situation that guy has to build generational wealth for him and his family for generations to come. Like, that I isn't just an obvious hole in this argument. So I'd love to hear, and I assume, and I hope that it's somehow addressed in this book, but that, that's, that's a very curious argument I hadn't thought about. Yeah. Well, I mean, I which think, is very, if, which is very selfish of me that I hadn't thought about it, but I'll be <laughs> well, honest. I mean, I think that if you gave to 
kids often and charities often and early, I mean, you would still build up their individual wealth. And you might even be able, by using the gifting tax exemptions, you'd be able to avoid a significant amount of um, inheritance tax. I mean, I think the alternate to that is you want to set up your long-term generational wealth money in some sort of external foundation that would be able to del it out to your family over time in a, in a more tax-efficient way. Um, that might be run by a combination of your family and third parties and give to charities as well. That way, like you're not as, um, you know, you're not as hit by taxes. Of course, like you're always going to, taxes are always going to, and taxes are always going to be a thing. Um, but I think that, I think you're going to have better long-term results if you don't give early because one, your, your kids are going to be more likely to swindle that, swindle that money and the charities are, you're not going to get any return. Family's not going to get any return. Not that it's bad to give to charities, but if your goal is generational wealth, I think that you want to go with time and market um, and try some tax exemption strategies. But yeah, it is yeah, that, no, that, that is, is something I think about. So that's super interesting. Yeah the the generational wealth piece is interesting, which I guess bleeds in this other quote that I wanted just to pull up from the book that I thought was just really interesting. I never thought about it this way, but again, with this pivot of generational wealth, it could, it's anyway, I'm just going to read it. Um, it says, if you spend hours and hours of your life acquiring money and then die without spending all of that money, then you've needlessly wasted too many precious hours of your life. There's no way to get those hours back. For example, if you die with a million dollars left, that's a million dollars of experiences that you didn't take. And if you die with $50,000 left, well, that's $50,000 of experiences that you didn't have. No way is that optimal. The question we all must answer is how to make the most of our finite time on earth. I, think I don't know if you have any, I, I'm curious. Yeah. I, I just want to hear your reaction to that, especially after the the little tidbit that we've just been talking about. Yeah. I mean, I think that it, that's like, you can't disagree with that in, well, in some ways, but um, in other ways, that's not true. Like if you die with an extra million dollars, that's not a million dollars of experiences you couldn't have because maybe what percentage of that money was invested at what periods in your life? It wasn't a million dollars. It was, you know, it was less than that. That's besides the point though, because it's valid that you're forgoing some experiences or some enjoyment um, by doing that. Um, the counter to that is if you die with zero dollars left and you give nothing to your, your kids, you taking, you're taking away, even if let's say you just do traditional inheritance and you have a million dollars, you're taking away six hundred, five hundred thousand dollars of experiences from your kids. And how much then are you taking from your grandkids and their grandkids? And so I think the, the question of the book or the, the question that ends up we have to end up answering is. Is it OK for us to be selfish with the time we have on this earth? Because if we spent. You know, if, if I spend a hundred hours volunteering to help feed local homeless people, that's a hundred hours that I'm not going to spend on life changing experience. And some could argue that is a life changing experience and I wouldn't disagree, but that's a hundred hours I'm not going to spend traveling the streets of Paris with money that I could have made. Um, right. And so it's a question of how important is it that the time we have on earth here is spent for our benefit? And how important is it that it's spent on the benefit of others? And I guess you could be more specific, the benefit of our descendants or slash maybe our current, you know, family, nieces, nephews, et cetera. Yeah, I think I think an interesting point that you made there is like that that is true. I guess if you're just swapping pure hours. But I guess my I I I wonder if the book isn't necessarily also or at least my interpretation isn't the 
100 hours of volunteering at soup kitchen or 100 hours spending thousands of dollars going to Paris on a luxury vacation. Like it's 100 hours working for a job I hate or 100 hours on vacation. 100 hours of working for a job I hate or 100 hours volunteering. 50 hours of a job at a or work that a job I hate. 50 hours on a personal passion of mine where I can add value to the world through my unique passions that I have. So like I think at least the way I interpret it from the little summaries that I have, I think it just pushes us to think more about situations where you just endure life situations or work situations that you hate. If your reason is the money's good. I think the pushback is the classic, you know, what if you could find a way to merge the make money and passion situation? Because then by doing so, you're then optimizing your time on earth. What if, and I guess the argument is you could work hours and hours and hours while you're young. So you have a lot of money to then give back when you're old. But then that goes directly towards our initial talk, which is we're young. Shouldn't we be enjoying the experiences that we have because we have the opportunity to have little strength attached, like, you know, no kids. I mean, I guess you have a house, but like most, I mean, the, the least attached that we'll ever be in our entire lives, like is now. And then when we're empty nesters and we're 55. So it's like, does that mean we just put life on hold for those years and just work our ass off, serve our kids. And then they go off and then we reclaim our lives as people. Like, I mean, I think sometimes I think about that, about my parents. It's like, I feel like that's kind of the mode that you operate in. You make a lot of money or you work really hard and you have kids and then you serve your kids and you make money. And then finally they're empty nesters. And finally you can live your life again and follow your passions again. Cause you had served your entire life purpose up to that point to serve your kids and to make money for your kids and for your life, which is again, a very noble thing to do. And I'm not arguing that's bad. I'm sure that's what I'll do, but I think it's just, it's an interesting pushback of like, I don't think optimizing life necessarily means just blow all your money on being a digital nomad. I think it's just like, how do you, how do you optimize life such that the activity that you do to make money, like, especially if that thing is something that you don't enjoy, how do you minimize that? Or at least have a like finite set of goals of how long you're going to do that thing. And understanding the fruit of your labor mm-hmm. very particularly rather than just saving to the void and then letting your descendants figure out the money that you left behind, figure out what they want to do with it. Yeah, I think that, yeah, I think that makes sense. It's kind of, I think that I, there is some pull in this conversation to, especially we, of course, don't understand what it's like to have kids. We don't understand what it's like to, you know, age <laughs> too far uh so mm-hmm. it is it, i think it's like easy for us to say like okay we're just gonna work our asses off and do nothing you know fun or valuable from 25 to 55 and then we'll try to reclaim our lives as humans i think it's also important to like realize that like even if you're not doing something you love as a job that doesn't necessarily mean that it can't be fulfilling and I think part of that is like a mindset thing. I feel like there's a lot of societal pressure as well of saying like, if you're not being a YouTube creator, making videos about things you love or like following your passion, making TikToks and doing music TikToks or, you know, you know, starting your own business that you're passionate about, then you are not able to enjoy your work. Like you're not able to be fulfilled by your work. Like doing a job that is helpful to society even in a relatively mundane way, seems like it's no longer socially acceptable for that to be like a fulfilling job. 
even if it's boring, even if you don't love it. I think that, I guess I, I, I always think back to my grandma, who is now 102, 100, 102. Um, Man. But like the way that I would always describe her, which I only, of course, knew her when she was older, but is like content. Like she had an incredible ability. And I feel like that's, that's something you see a lot in the older generation, which maybe that's age. I'm not sure. But an ability to be content, if not completely, you know, driving all these experiences that they really want to do, optimizing their lives for these things that they love. Um, you know, maybe they still do things they love, but they're content in the life they have. And I think that's something that partially we're losing. Um, and this is kind of a big tangent, but like, um, where it's like, we feel like life is something that needs to be optimized, that life is something that needs to be special or important, or, um, you know, if you're not doing what you watch the people on YouTube doing, you're not succeeding in life. You need to be having, you know, you need to be optimizing all this life. And it seems like it's almost unacceptable to just live life, essentially walk the trail, be content in a job you maybe don't love, smell the roses. Um, and maybe there's an argument that that's just deciding what you like, like you said, and optimizing for that. But um, I feel like we make it into a battle of like doing the things you love or you know, getting lucky enough to have a job you love or um, working your ass off. Um, and, and the job you hate and hating your life and then eventually reclaiming your life. Um, but I think it's something that maybe we can work on as a generation, but also maybe it's not something that's ever existed is learning. Cause I think it's a learned skill to be content in the position you are in life, which then allows you, like you said, to find these other things. Um, because otherwise if you convince yourself that work sucks, that, outside of work is the only thing that's valuable to you or like, you know, these other things are the only thing that's valuable and work is just a, a mundane drag on your life. Then you're going to hate work and it's not going to be enjoyable. If you're able to somehow find a way to be content with your work and like understand that you're probably contributing positively to society, um, even if it's something that feels mundane, then I think you have an opportunity to have that contentness in work um, while outside of work, doing things you're really passionate about. And I feel like that might be a key to more happiness. But again, I don't have that skill. Um, I don't think I'm going to learn it from my 101-year-old grandma anytime soon. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. It was a big tangent, but um, yeah. No, I, I I love it. It's it's interesting, this word optimize, because I think it, it can go both ways. Is like optimize can be the definition of, yeah, the, the, new, the newfound rhetoric in our generation of, don't stop until you can align your work with your passion. Like don't stop until you find the thing that just, just throws you out of bed in the morning because you're so excited about it. And that thing makes you money. Like don't stop, Op like optimize your life for that. Then there's the other coin of optimizing your life for saving every penny and optimize your life so that every dollar in, dollar out, money focused gives you the output to the things that you want, whether the output is generational wealth, whether the output is the trips you've always wanted to do, whether the output is funding your kid's college or all of the above. Like I, I think it's, I agree. It's interesting to explore this idea of live life and be content. And 
I think it goes back to my, my argument of wouldn't it be nice to just find the things that you ultimately want to save for and the ideal life, write it down, figure out savings goals that align to those goals, meet those goals every month, the extra slush. If you have the opportunity to have that extra, live life, mm-hmm. buy the thing you want, do the thing you want, save up for the thing you want. Don't feel guilty to invest every dime. Or again, if you know, you're feeling particularly gracious using that money to donate or give it to your kids or give it, you know, whatever it might be, like not feeling the pressure of every dollar in need to analyze. I wonder if that is like an interesting, like, optimization like it's optimizing like you're basically optimizing your cash in cash out flow so you don't have to think about it but i wonder if by being more intentional therefore it puts into context working for a job that you don't love but i have defined things that i love and defined things that my job is letting me do because i don't love it but it gives me money and it lets me have meet these savings goals it lets me have the money to do these things and therefore i am content like I think that that would be a powerful outcome and an exercise I haven't done, mm-hmm. but yeah, I think that's interesting. Although, yeah, I mean, one thing I thought of is like, you know, we're talking about like this, this exercise of, like you said, either optimizing for these mundane goals slash your enjoyment, um, kind of what I'd call like optimizing for this, the content life. Maybe that's the next TikTok trend. We could start it. We could become the next, you know, we could become that's millionaires, right. Luke, uh, on TikTok content life but <laughs> like a course in in a, <laughs> in a way like what you mentioned uh earlier in the podcast is like uh you said on memorial day weekend or maybe this was before the podcast can't remember on memorial day weekend all you did was you went to like a coffee shop that was like the highlight right and it was like mundane and it was peaceful and it was good in a way that's like living the content life where it's just like you've where at the beginning you would have would have felt bad maybe about doing that, not taking advantage of these experiences that you could have had in Seattle. Whereas now it's like, you know what? I enjoyed this and there's nothing wrong with me not doing something crazy, not doing something um, maybe that someone would, ex- I'd want to post on Instagram or something and just mm-hmm. being content with this neat experience that I have. That's not cool or crazy or is cool, but isn't like crazy or anything, but just is what it is. Um, I think that's interesting. Similar thing with like me, like I, I have a garden, like sometimes it's just nice to go out and look at my garden. There's nothing I'm going to gain from looking at my garden, but it's just like, I'm content to have a cool garden and just sit out and look at it sometimes, watch it. And, um, I don't know. It's, it's almost like this idea of like, how do we learn to accept boring lives and be happy about it? And that, yeah, that maybe is what we need to, maybe that's what the world's missing these days is how to be bored. Yeah, that, that's a fair one. And I mean, and the only reason I started to question if going to a coffee shop was actually boring and lame was because we were going around the circle with everyone who is a direct report to my manager. And this guy went to California for the weekend. This one went to Vancouver and that one went to do this crazy thing, this concert. And it's just like, oh, what'd you do, Luke? And like, it's like, oh, well, compared to that, what I am about to say is very lame, but do I appreciate just going to a coffee shop and do I find that peaceful? Yes. Therefore, it shouldn't matter. Like that is like the ideal situation. Obviously, it's not that easy, but it, yeah, I think there is something to be said and like about shifting your mindset. If you can find ways to shift your mind from like 
boring and the boringness is making it f- me making me feel like I'm wasting my time. Shifting that mindset to stillness is peaceful. Stillness isn't boring and anxious. I think that's like super profound. Yeah, that's like that's like you're ascending. Like you've reached the next level of Buddhism if you've done that. Mm. Um, if yes. you aspire <laughs> to Buddhist beliefs, I guess. <laughs> but yes. uh, yeah, I think that is something that I think is is would be a valuable thing for me personally to practice, but also like a lot of young professionals is like, or a lot of just people in general these days, like there's so much, I'm going to sound like my mom now. There's so much noise. There's so much like hammering you from social media, from entertainment spaces, from just music. Like there's so much around us that it's hard sometimes to just be still, uh, like you said. Um, And I think it's, yeah, it's very profound. If you could learn how to, transfer your mindset from stillness and nothingness is boring or like just a boring job is just boring to um like this is peaceful and i'm content in my my situation i think that that's very interesting and probably something we won't achieve till we're till we're 60 or 70 but um something to aspire well, thankfully when we're on episode 10,227 we will revisit this topic when we are in the old elderly age of 57 and we yeah. can revisit our financial decisions and uh, see if this podcast was just speaking out our ass or if we, we were on to something back when we were 23. Who knew? I mean, this podcast is always speaking out of our ass. It's just a question. <laughs> we'll get to see if our, if our shit um, fertilized good fruit or not. <laughs> well, thankfully we get all of the wonderful feedback from our many listeners through our feedback forum that you can find at unpromptedpod.com if you find any value from the shit that we spew please drop a line we would we will feature you in the podcast Um, if you've noticed we've never featured anyone in the podcast it's because we never have any feedback filled out on the form we have one person that filled it back and they were featured and they still haven't gotten paid that is unfortunately very true. Uh, I put out a challenge and uh, the challenge was met with a response. And I do owe a lucky wish, uh, listener $10 that I, uh, I I do have a debt on. Yes. And it, it will have to increase with interest. <laughs> but no, this is a great episode. I um, think thanks for chatting about it. I definitely want to read the book now. I probably like the, my favorite point that you made, which is just hilarious that like, it didn't even cross my mind. And I, I appreciate the vibe check is like the level of selfishness that dying with zero can have. And I'm curious if this guy addresses that. Yeah. I'd be all. interested to hear as well what, what he says about it. So yeah, he is a CEO of a natural gas company, uh, <laughs> generated more than a billion dollars for his head fund. Um, an avid poker player with more than $5 million in live tournament winnings. So sounds like his uh, dying with zero is going to be very different than a normal person's dying with zero. Yeah. Wouldn't that? Yeah. Yeah. Talk about, yeah, we here we are like comparing like, I don't know, like our not, not measly, but you know, in comparison, our tech salaries to maybe folks who don't have tech salaries, try tech salary versus a guy who's generated a billion dollars for his head fund. Imagine, or Mr. Bezos buying his $4 million yacht. Like that's just a level of uh, insanity. Yeah. I think like reiterating, if you, if you're a billionaire giving to your kids early 
probably will you'll do fine with generational wealth (laughs) my comment was not about billionaires (laughs) i cannot like i mentioned i can't speak to people in different financial situations than my own i'm not aware of billionaires financial situations but i i would guarantee your generational wealth it'll be just fine uh giving giving but just fine well this was the great episode but before we go we have a regularly scheduled segment on the pod which uh is our i don't know if we ever had a title for it other than the fact that it was an irregularly scheduled segment but now it is very very regular now 20 episodes in Mm -hmm. but uh it's where i ask Jared, the history buff, a question about a time frame, a location, a person, anywhere in history. And he always just befuddles me with an amazing fact that I had not heard. I almost got him last time. I almost knew something he was about to say. And then he did a little switcheroo and gave me <laughs> some new knowledge that I didn't know. But trying to think if there's anything related to uh, to anything we talked about in this pod. I'm uh, How old is your grandma? 101. 101, yeah. We talked about the Great Depression. Yeah, we did the Great time, Depression so already. I can't do that. Um, let me see here. Uh, this guy that I just talked to, Bill Perkins, he's the author of this book that we've been referencing. He was, like I said, the CEO of a natural gas company. Is there, uh, is there anything about natural gas? <laughs> you can mull over that one while I think of something better. Uh, uh- so can I can I switch it just to oil? Yeah, that's fair. Because if we talk about money, right? Yeah. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna string some strings together here. So be prepared. all right. Well, I can't okay. wait. So as we all know, like who is the quintessential rich oil titan? Right. Right. Standard Oil <laughs> uh, Rockefeller. 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 Yep. Okay. Yep. So Rockefeller was. If I remember correctly, Rockefeller was an immigrant who worked as a bookkeeper and eventually like bought a farm with oil on it and ended up he like started an oil business um, and he ended up being very successful and found Standard Oil, uh, which was kind of one of America's biggest monopolies. Um, And he became, I believe, up until like the late 2010s was the richest person in American history, um, like with an adjusted wealth. And he might even still be. Um, he was very, very wealthy. I think he was like a hundred millionaire, like oh, had over a hundred million dollars in like the 1890s, which was Damn. crazy. Damn. Um, and so now I'm going to string this to the other rich uh, titan of that area, that era, uh, Carnegie of Carnegie Steel. Um, and of um, and of railroads as well, uh, but Carnegie, as like you may know, if you walk over to any local library, that might be like a Carnegie library, or uh, there may be like Carnegie Fields, uh, is because at the end of his life, uh, Carnegie kind of had an awakening of the fact that like the quest for endless money is kind of useless, hmm. um, and became. Very and of course, as one of the richest men in America, being oh. what today would be a many billionaire, it's easy to come to that assumption when you have no worries about money. Um, but he started like a lot of philanthropical work, as like any. He was one of the first billionaires that really did that uh, hardcore, uh, and opened a lot of libraries, did a lot of public works projects, um, 
And so I think that's just a little bit relevant to what we're talking about today of like, what are we building towards? Um, because it seems as though, yeah, like anyone who gets to this certain point decides in like history decides, oh, I just have to give it away. Like there's nothing else for me to do. I like, I found that it doesn't make me happy. We haven't figured out what that point is that when there's no more happiness, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, so, uh, that's all I got for you, Luke. Not, not too much <laughs> that's, hey, that, that's a good one. Again, I was kind of nervous you were going to do some of the, you know, uh, Rockefeller, Carnegie, like, Monopoly, antitrust stuff. But uh, you, you walked into the fact about the Carnegie Library. What? <laughs> like, I, libraries had no idea. That's awesome. Really? You didn't know that? I did not know that. drive through uh, the Seward Library is a Carnegie Library. That's uh, or crazy. at least the old one was. The old library in Seward was... Built by or funded by Carnegie. I don't know if the new one still is called Carnegie. But. Is it like a fund that like libraries can apply for, or is it like a grant, or like well, is it like a franchise, <laughs> a library <laughs> franchise? <laughs> uh, no, I think it was just back in the like when he was old and like shortly after his death, he like established a foundation that just built a lot of libraries. I see um, all over the country. Um, so he just like paid for libraries to be built, and I think it was just those original buildings where it's like those are the Ca- Carnegie libraries. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that is, uh, that's, that's really what I got. Um, I mean, Hey, I'll take it. That was, that was, that was pretty good considering I gave you natural gas. <laughs> uh, I mean, natural like I said, gas listeners could have, could have went so many places. Uh, but that's where I went, tried to relate it. Well, we'll see. We'll see how, how the many listeners respond. I'm sure we're going to get a flood of feedback from our feedback forum on unproptedpod.com. Just to hear that. Hammer that home. Make sure. Spell it out for people. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as always, thank you, sir. Uh, Great pod. And we will see you at our regularly scheduled time next week, I'm sure. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Talk to all you guys next week. Bye. Cool. See ya.